Please open your Bibles to John 14. If needed, there are Bibles available under your seat. Now hear the word of the Lord from John 14, verses 15 through 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and, he, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I live with, leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. I apologize. I know it's no fun to listen to somebody with a voice that sounds like this. Uh, my, I don't enjoy hearing my own voice when it sounds like this. And uh, I'm just going to pray that my brain will actually operate the way that I want it to operate this morning. Um, if you are new to Sacred City Church, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. And if you are newer here, God is really doing something special at our church, and it is a, an exciting time to be joining us. Uh, when I planted Sacred City Church 12 years ago with a few friends in my living room, I never would have imagined that we would be where we are today. I thought we were going to be a small church forever. Our emphasis has always been on reaching people who don't know Christ and then discipling them towards Christ. We actually didn't even allow other Christians to transfer from another church to our church in the beginning. Uh, we were so passionate about reaching the lost and making disciples in community and on mission. So our goal has never been to be a large church, we want to be a biblically faithful church. A church who believes what the scriptures teach and do our best with the Spirit's help to live the way that God calls us to live by his word. That is still our number one goal as a church, but God has seen fit to bless us with more and more people, and that is an evidence of grace that we want to thank him for. We also believe that Jesus is the one who builds his church. That means he's the one sending people to us 
And if he sends them to us, we need to do our best to love them and serve them well. That means when they get here, uh, they need to have a parking spot. Uh, We need to have room in our kids' classes for them so they can hear the gospel and learn of Jesus. And of course, we need to have empty seats available for them in here so they can worship God alongside of us. Our deacons told me this week, based upon our previous year's attendance and trends, that we should expect between 650 and 675 people to worship with us on Easter. Now, I can hardly wrap my head around that. There's obviously no way that we can serve that many people with only one service. So we are going to be launching a new service, or actually two service options on Easter. Our deacons also tell me that if our previous year's attendance trends continue, we should expect around 515 people to worship with us following Easter. That's an average of about 65 more people than are currently worshiping with us on a weekly basis. What that means is that we're going to have to continue to have two services following Easter. So here's what the elders and staff have decided to do. We're going to launch two services on Easter, and we are making the commitment to keeping those two services for at least six weeks following Easter, and then we will evaluate how things are are going, and then we will reassess to see if we need to keep them both indefinitely. Just to let you into some insider baseball, people who study these things for a living tell us that if any of our environments are at 80% capacity, then you are effectively full and people begin to be deterred from attending. So that means parking, kid spaces, sanctuary, and if you don't know, our parking is pretty much 100% full. We've got 20 of our leaders parking down at the bank and the 20, we got all the street parking full, we got the, we got the parking lot full. Two of our kids' classes are full as well. Our sanctuary is at 70%, probably more than that this morning, largely because we shrunk the stage and we, we uh, built risers in the balcony to accommodate more seat, seating in here when we did the remodeling, just so we could get more seating in the sanctuary. So at this time, our issue is mainly a parking and kids' classroom issue, though our sanctuary is getting close and we couldn't handle our our Easter attendance for sure. Unless we get, you know, 12 inches of snow and uh, 30 below temps, then we'll be fine. (laughs) So let me now get to what you are probably wanting to know. What will be our service times? Well, let me just say right away that these times are not set in stone. I did not go to the top of Mount Sinai and receive these directly from God. Though that would be convenient. We're going to be sending out a survey tomorrow by a church center. So another reason to get the app. So that you can let us know your opinion and what service would would serve your family well. So that we can make the wisest decision possible. A few years ago when we were in the theater and we needed to go to two services. We thought we would just do what most churches do. Let's just copy everybody else and go 9 and 11. We sent out a survey and 90% of our people said we'll go to 9. Well, that doesn't help us with parking situation and all those different things. So we bumped it up and we went 8.30 and 10.30 and we got about a 60-40 split and that worked for us. That gave us approximately 30 minutes in between services to get people out of the building and to get the next service in. Well, what we discovered was that was not very much time and it limited the amount of time our people could spend hanging out and having fellowship with one another. 
One of the best things about our new building is the ability to hang out after service and not feel rushed or herded out like cattle, right? So the next group can get in here. So we want to learn from our past experiences and make a couple changes to our service times and see if it's more enjoyable and functional for us as a growing church. As of now, drum roll please, we are thinking about offering an 8.15 service and a 10.45 service with an hour in between them. That's not traditional. We, might, we think it might be the best option for us, though, because the first service is not too early. We're pushing that eight. We're pushing that eight, but we're not there. 8.15. And the second service is not too late, as you'll still be getting out like about 12.15. Plus, it gives us an hour in between to fellowship and change things over for our next service without rushing. Again, these are not written in stone, and we want to invite your opinion via survey tomorrow. If it doesn't work, we'll try something new. We'll try something different. Listen, I know most of us love having one service. I do too. I would much rather, excuse me, I would much prefer to have only one service. I love all of us worshiping together, and to be honest, preaching wears me out. Preaching twice in one day usually wipes me out for the rest of the day. But knowing we have the space for new people to come and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and have their lives changed like we have had our lives changed is far more important to me than my personal preference for one service. See, Jesus came and served us. And it cost him a whole lot more than a few hours on a Sunday. It cost him his life. It cost him his blood. And Jesus tells us, as I have served you, you are to serve one another. So it's important that we all have the same mindset that Jesus had. We are servants who serve others as a way of life. And Sunday isn't just about us getting what we need from the Lord. It's also about serving each other. So Easter is seven weeks away. For us to be able to pull this off and keep a six-week rotation in our kids' ministry, I said last week that we needed 47 new kids' volunteers. Praise God, we got 25 of the, 25% of those last week, but that means we still need another 30 or so volunteers. We're also going to need a lot more folks to serve out in the atrium, greeting guests, serving coffee, and offering gospel hospitality to those God brings through our doors. So the easiest way for you to help us make this happen is to see Alicia Miller. If you aren't serving in kids yet, she'll be wearing a name tag. She'll be out there following this service, or to see Alex Tate, who Alex is right here, wave your hand, Alex, right there, and he'll be wearing a name tag, and he'll be out there as well. Alex leads our teams in the atrium, so if you, if you want to serve coffee, be a greeter, any of those things, you don't miss the gathering when you do those things, we would love, and you can do both, you can serve in the kids, and not the same week, but you can serve in the kids, and also serve at the front of house, we would really appreciate you finding those folks getting joined together in one of those teams and helping us serve the people that God sends us really well in this new season for us as a church. Well, that's my announcement. Now let me pray for us because we have a lot of work to do in this text. And uh, so let me pray for us and ask God's blessing upon us. Father God, first we want to humble ourselves and put ourselves in the correct position, which is a a position to receive that we don't stand over your word, we sit under your word, that your word is holding all things together even as we speak, 
that you are the God that created all the laws of nature. You are the God that created all the moral laws of the universe, the laws of logic, everything that, we're, that is held together is held together by your word. And your word shows us who Jesus is, shows us who the Father is, shows us who the Holy Spirit is, shows us who we are. And Father, we need your word. We are people that need the word of God to come from outside of us to show us who you are, what you've done, and who we are and how we should live. So we ask that you would do that for us this morning. God, I once again confess my need for you, that I am not sufficient for this task, that your word, oh man, Jesus, you were the ultimate preacher, and uh, I am not you, and so I need your strength this morning. I need you to think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords. I ask the Holy Spirit to lead me even in my weakness and show us things that we wouldn't know any other way but through your spirit and by your word. We also want to pray for Isla. She continues to fight her, her, her battle, Lord. Strengthen her and continue to heal her body. We pray for Tona Dean. We ask that you would give the doctors wisdom and help them find out what this sickness is and that you would bring healing to her body as well. Any other members of our church who are struggling with sickness, Lord God, that you would strengthen them and heal them for you are the God that healeth us. And we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, the passage of scripture that we are going to be studying this morning is one of the most important things that Jesus ever taught. And that's saying something. These words are from Jesus' farewell discourse. Jesus is just hours away now from being crucified, and this is his last opportunity to teach his disciples. If I could use an illustration, I would say that Jesus, in effect, is on his deathbed. He's been given hours to live, and he invites his beloved disciples into his hospital room, and in effect, he says, come close, I've got really important things to say to you. Now, if you've ever been in a room like that, no matter what day it is, people rarely talk about football or the weather. No, they talk about what's most important. They talk about what's vital. They want, a, they want the living to know and remember after they are gone certain things. They talk about love. They talk about regrets sometimes. I was brought to tears this week in my study thinking about this, that this is that moment for Jesus. If you forget everything I have to say, remember this. This is one of those types of moments. So in these 16 verses that we're going to study this morning, it's interesting. Jesus speaks of love 10 times. He speaks of commandments seven times. And he speaks of the Holy Spirit seven times as well. So he's repeating himself multiple times in these last moments. And of course, that's to get our attention. He wants to keep the main thing the main thing. He wants people to leave knowing with certainty about love, about commandments, and about the Holy Spirit. Now, let's tackle each one of these in turn. We're going to look at love first. And this is where we have a huge problem for us as Americans. It really doesn't even matter how much you've been in church and how much you've read the Bible. We've grown up in an environment that we probably don't understand what love is. It's been said that the greatest battles being fought in our day are actually being fought in the dictionary. 
In other words, there's a battle going on over the definition of words. So I ask you, when Jesus says the word love, what does he mean? What is love? Well, a quick Google search, which is what we all do first, (laughs) will define love as an intense feeling of deep affection or a great interest and pleasure in something. Now, these two definitions are not wrong, but they are woefully incomplete according to Jesus. We all know intrinsically that to love something or to love someone is to have an intense feeling or deep affection. The problem is our culture says that love is only that. Love is only that intense feeling, that intense drawing towards another person. And once you, st- once you begin to study love, you realize that that type of love is actually the lowest form of love. And it is your prime, if that is your primary way of defining love, your life will actually be full of chaos and destruction. Well, why? Because some days I have an intense love for God, and some days I don't. Some days I have an intense love for my spouse, and some days I don't. Some days I have an intense love for my kids, and some days I don't. Some days my love for sin is stronger than my love for the good things of God, and when that happens, I begin to behave in ways that actually destroy my greater loves. And so in this same passage, when Jesus speaks of love 10 times. He also speaks of his commandments in some form or another seven times. In other words, Jesus is saying, he says it straightforward, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. In other words, love is not just a feeling. Love is an action. Love does more than just feel. Love moves and acts and obeys. Let's go to our text, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Listen, there is anyone who makes a separation between love and obedience doesn't understand love. Right? If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Scott has done a great job the past two weeks talking about this separation anxiety that these disciples are going to feel. They're gonna feel orphaned, right? Jesus is about to leave them. Later on in John, Jesus says, it's better for you that I go. And I always said, I think you got that one wrong, Jesus. Like, right? When I was on the, like when I was the older brother, when my little brother was on the playground, he always wanted me there with him. Why? Because I could beat up whoever was causing him problems, right? That's why. When I'm going through issues, I want Jesus right there with me. Take it, take it, Jesus. Like, that'd be really helpful. Like, One, I'm out of wine, Jesus, right? (laughs) Like, that'd be helpful, right? But Jesus says, I'm not gonna leave you as orphans, and me leaving is actually gonna be better for you, and I'll be honest, that's one of the promises of Jesus that I've doubted most of my life. How is it better that you leave? Well, we're gonna see 
later today. Verse 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. He's referring to his death. But you will see me. He's referring to his resurrection. Because I live, you also will live. You will have eternal life, Jesus is saying. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. We are going to get into some serious deep waters in this text today. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In other words, it's really easy to, to get dressed up and to walk down an aisle and to get up in front of your friends and family and to make vows and commitments to one person. And in that moment, you feel intense love for that person, right? But we are all out of our depth in that moment. We are all making vows and commitments that none of us are sure we could possibly keep. Right? That's one of the, the weights. You guys have heard me tell this story before that when the, when the bride opens those doors and she starts coming down, my eyes see her, but I'm not really interested in that. I'm looking at him because I'm waiting for the weight to hit him. And in that moment, the weight hits him. I don't care if he's 260 and he can bench press 400 pounds. I don't care what kind of alpha male he is. His lip starts quivering and you can just feel the weight of, oh my goodness, can I love this woman? Can I be faithful? Can I act in loving ways towards her my whole life? Can I do, am I the type of man who can fulfill these vows? Who can hold them for my whole life? See, love is more than a feeling. Love obeys commandments. And Jesus says the same thing. If you love me, you'll obey me. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, verse 21, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. So we see this kind of reciprocal relationship where we're gonna receive love from God and then we're gonna use that love that God gives us to love God himself and to also love other people. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. So the father will love him. The son, Jesus Christ, will love him. Judas, not Iscariot, <laughs> said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. See, there it is again, commandments. Keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father who sent me. So Jesus here is pairing love. Love is a feeling and also love is an action. You'll obey my commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. This is also why in the greatest chapter on love in the Bible, one that we say at most weddings, right? 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle Paul writes this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. True love never ends. That doesn't even make any sense whatsoever if you're talking about emotions, right? Because I love my wife, but tonight when I see that nacho dip and I see that football game, my loves are gonna be pulled. <laughs> right? My devotion is gonna be right here. 
right? True love, though, goes deeper than those feelings. Love never ends. See, love as a feeling ebbs and flows. It's normal for it to ebb and flow. Love as a feeling can actually destroy and consume others for our own selfish reasons. It can lead us to destroy the ones we are called by God to love the most. But love in action is a dreadful and beautiful thing. I say it's dreadful because it is so difficult. Did you hear the words Paul used? Patience. I've never once felt like being patient. (laughs) Never once. Kindness. Humility. Rejoicing with the truth. Bearing all things. Hoping all things. Enduring all things. Love endures. Love is not just a feeling. Love in action is meant to never end even when the feelings do. But love is also a beautiful thing because it is what we were made for. 1 John 4, 7 through 8 says it like this. Beloved or loved ones, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God. Think of it like this. You are a recipient of the love of your parents. They loved one another, they came together, and they made you, right? In the same way, whoever loves has been born of God. God has loved you, and he causes you to be born again. He causes you to be brought into the family of God. You have a new father. You have new brothers and sisters. God's love is what saves us. God's love is what adopts us into his family. That's what it means to be born of God and know God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is Love. See, God is love. We were made to worship God and enjoy him forever. That could be really bad news if God wasn't love. But you're made to know love and enjoy love forever. Eternal love. God type of, the God type of love because God himself is love. So for the Christian, there's three things for love to be right or true. One, love must be aimed at a proper object. Our first object, of course, is God. God is love, and so I must love God more than I love anything else. That's the, that's the first love, right? But then, obviously, it must be aimed at the proper object. My spouse is a proper object. My kids, our church, proper objects. But sin is an improper object. I should not love anything that's, I should not love sin at all. I should hate sin. Get that? So it must be aimed at a proper object. Secondly, it must be ordered appropriately, right? If I love my wife the same way that I love hot dogs, that's, an, that's a love that's out of order. Now that's kind of a facetious example. But if I love my wife the same way I love my job, or the same way I love a receptionist, or the same way I love anything else, that is love out of order, Right? There's higher orders of love. I should love God in a unique way even than I love my spouse. I should love my God more than I love my spouse. 
And interesting enough, if I do that, I will be enabled to love my spouse in greater ways. So love must be ordered appropriately. And then lastly, love must act in ways that God commands. Love must act in ways that God commands. Patient, kind, gentle, self-control, these different things. So in order for love to be truly love, it must have a proper object, it must be properly ordered, and it must act in ways that God's, God commands. So in our text today, Jesus, with some of his last words, is trying to define their relationship. He wants them to know his love, he wants them to experience objectively and subjectively God's love, the Father's love. But he also wants them to know how they are to respond to his love. That they are to love him back. Yes, they should feel an intense feeling and desire to love him, but that feeling will ebb and flow over their life. And even when it ebbs and flows, love keeps his commandments. Love obeys God. Love obeys Jesus. Love must continue to act loving even when the feelings are off. So here's the profound question that Jesus answers for his disciples and us this morning. How? How do we continue to act and obey out of our love for God even when we don't feel like it? I'm going to say, this is what makes Christians different this morning. This is what makes Christians different from anybody else in the world. We're not just trying hard. We don't just have a list of commandments. The love of God and the commandments go together. This, Jesus is going to talk about a power that Christians have that no one else on earth has but Christians. How do you love faithfully when all you feel like doing is cheating? How do you love patiently when all you feel like doing is blowing up? How do you love joyfully when all you feel like doing is being irritated or resentful? How can you have a love that never fails? Well, Jesus' answer to these questions is absolutely profound. And unlike, they are unlike any other religion on the planet or any other philosophy in the world. His answer is totally new. And if I do my job decently this morning and explain this passage with any clarity at all, it should blow you away and melt you in your seats. So what I want to do is give you the simple answer first and then help you see the work behind it, the complexity that is involved in and underneath that simple answer. Here's the simple answer to the question. How can I love God, my family, my church, when I don't feel like loving them? The simple answer is right here in verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says he will ask the father and the father will give you another helper. To be with you forever 
Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Listen, being a Christian isn't just acknowledging that Jesus was God in the flesh. It's not just believing that he died on the cross for your sins or trying really hard to obey his commandments and teaching. Are you a Christian? Man, I'm trying. You don't get it. Are you a Christian? I'm trying. You don't get it. See, this is unlike anything the world has to offer. Being a Christian means that God the Father and God the Son have sent God the Holy Spirit into your heart to change the object of your love. You no longer love yourself more than anything else. Now you love God. Change the order of your loves. God is now my, the preeminent one and everything else I, I love under him. And the actions of your love. I obey God. What God tells me to do, that's what I do. To be a Christian means God the Holy Spirit has come inside and reordered everything about you on the inside. To put this as simply as I can, God the Holy Spirit helps us love God and love others as he loves us. Now, help is just far too weak of a word. If you look at four different Bible translations, they all have different words there. Some translations will call him the advocate. Some will call him the helper. Some will call him the comforter. Some will call him the counselor. And those are just the top four. Whenever you see that all the translations render a word in a different way, what you need to know is that you have a word there that is so rich that no one English word can convey the fullness or the meaning of, of the meaning of it. So every word is trying to get at something that that word, which is paraclete in the Greek, it's trying to get at something, but it can't fully encompass what that word entails. And when you start thinking about the difficulty and the complexity of love, you realize why we need the Holy Spirit to actually do all these things for us. Listen, he's the advocate. An advocate, this has the sense of being an attorney, a witness in a trial. It's got legal ramifications. What do you need an advocate to do? You need him to, him to prove things. You need him to witness you need him to convince a jury, right? Convince maybe even yourself of the truth of something. When you see help, this is the idea that someone comes alongside of us and gives us what we lack when we need it. When you see comforter, this is a person that provides shelter for us when things to be, seem to be out of control and we're tempted to react sinfully instead of trust in the providence of God. Counselor, this is the guy or gal who gives us the truth that we don't want to hear. If you go to a counselor and he tells you exactly what you want to hear, you don't go back to that counselor. You want the counselor to say the one thing everybody else is too afraid to say. You want to pay that person to say those things to you, right? The counselor, or the, the counselor is the one that tells us the truth about ourselves 
and shows us what we need to do if we want to change in the people that God has called us to be. Listen, Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit is all of those people for us. He's our advocate, he's our comforter, he's our helper, he's our counselor. But unlike all of those roles, what Jesus, Jesus says something profound here, that he is on the outside of them, but he won't stay on the outside of them. Look at verse 17. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. By the way, him, him, him. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of magical force that enables you to do things you couldn't do before. Tapping into something in the universe. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. He says this, you know him, look, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Before Jesus Christ had went to the cross and given his life as a ransom for them, and before he had returned to the Father, glorified to the right hand of the Father, to sit on the throne of the universe, the Holy Spirit was with them. All right? The Holy Spirit was with the apostles. The Holy Spirit was with the disciples. Think about coming alongside. Coming, the language in Scripture is the Holy Spirit would come upon them. All through the Old Testament. You would see some guy sinning like, to beat the band, just breaking every commandment he could break. And the Holy Spirit would come upon this person, now he starts prophesying. People are like, what just happened to that guy? Right? The Holy Spirit would come upon that person. The Holy Spirit would come upon a person to enable him for ministry. Jesus here is referring to something different. All through his earthly ministry, the Holy Spirit had been upon his disciples, but something was going to happen soon that the Holy Spirit would come into them. Something deeply mysterious was going to happen to them. We, saw that, we see this happen in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, that the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to be in them. This is why Peter goes from pathetic Peter to powerful Peter. And, and one day, in one moment, right, denies Jesus multiple times, hides, afraid of Jesus when Jesus is being crucified, abandons Jesus in his darkest moment, and then the Holy Spirit comes into him, and now he preaches with power. 3,000 people get saved. People that heard him preach said, this is an uneducated man. And it says, clearly he's been with Jesus. So there was a radical life change in Peter before the Holy Spirit came in and after the Holy Spirit came in. Also, verse 16 says that the Holy Spirit would be in them forever. Forever. Hear that. Do you hear the promise in that statement? The Holy Spirit would never leave them. Never. Never means never. No matter what they did, the Holy Spirit, once inside, will never leave them. Think about this. The Holy Spirit is the advocate who would never turn down your case. 
He's the advocate who will never stop pleading for you, never stop convincing you, never stop, uh, stop arguing on your behalf, never. Right? There's, there's, some, uh, there's some attorneys that just look at their client and they're like, I'm done. I got nothing. Not the Holy Spirit. He will never stop. He's the comforter who will never refuse to comfort you. He's the counselor who will never tell you you gotta wait three weeks for an appointment. He's always available right now. He's the helper who's never too busy to help. Now the question I want to get into this morning, so the first question is, how do I love God like this? How do I love when I don't feel like loving? How? The answer is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will enable you to love God and love others when you don't feel like it. But what I wanna do is get into some stuff this morning that is very difficult, right? It's a mystery. It's one of the deepest truths of the whole Christian faith. And it's the doctrine of the Trinity. And as we do, I wanna look, well, first off, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Let's look and see who is the Holy Spirit? Well, we call him the Holy Spirit. If you've got a King James Bible, you might call him the Holy Ghost, right? I like Holy Ghost. Got Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. Now listen, his name tells us something about him. He's holy, right? He's holy. What does that mean? He's like God, or he is God. He brings all of the attributes of God with him. So what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit brings holiness with him. The entire life of God comes into your life. I hope you hear what I'm saying to you. I'm not saying come to Jesus, you get your sins forgiven. I'm not saying come and you get eternal life when you die. I'm not saying here's a big list of things to obey. I'm saying when God saves you, he brings himself into you. He radically changes your life. God, the one, my kids, you know, they're learning about creation right now and they, we're sitting in the hot tub this week and I love it, we're looking up to the stars and they ask me, Dad, do you know how many earths can fit into the sun? I was like, a lot. <laughs> 1.7 million. God spoke the sun into existence. Okay, he has that kind of creative power. And that God, in some mysterious way, says, I'm going to say, what is this? And so when we're talking about the Trinity, I kind of feel like we're ants. We're ants discussing some trigonometry or something. <laughs> right. We don't know anything. God's revealing this to us. It's going to boggle our minds. It's going to cook our noodles today, okay? The God who spoke the galaxies into being says, I'm going to save these little people who are sinners, and I'm going to do that by sending my son to die for them, but that's not enough. I want to come and live in them. I want to give that kind of creative power and put it inside human beings who are sinful and broken and struggle and finite. I'm going to put the eternal in them. You get it? I don't. <laughs> So he's called in this passage the spirit of truth. Well, that tells us, listen, he doesn't just bring feels with him. He brings truth with him. He brings doctrine with him. 
He brings revelation with him. Jesus tells us, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Love and truth are not separate things. Any love that is divorced from truth is a counterfeit love. He promises to teach you all things and to bring to remembrance all that I've said to you in this passage. That means one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to give you a love for the scriptures. Listen, I don't remember reading any book. I cheated on every assignment growing up. I would read a few in the first page, flip to the middle, go to the end, write my book report. That's what I did. I didn't read books. And when God saved me at 17, all of a sudden, this thing became food to me. This thing woke me up in the morning. I'm, I'm with my high school roommate, or my high school best friend who became my roommate in college, and every morning I'm waking up. Well, he's, you know, he, he doesn't have class until 10. He's sleeping until 9.59, right? <laughs> and I'm up, at, I'm up at 6 a.m., highlighting, reading, going through. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came in and gave me a love for the scriptures. This is what he says he would do. And then I'd have conversations and all of a sudden this, I, this thought of something I had read that day would come out and I would share it with my friend or I would share it with somebody. That's the stuff the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't give us net, like divine revelation like what's going to happen tomorrow, right? Can he? Sure, he can. That's a specific gift. He can, but that's not the, what he normally does. What he normally does is bring to your remembrance scripture that you can apply in a certain situation. Like right as you feel the blood boiling and you remember love is patient. Spirit's working, hold on. Spirit time out, hold on. Give me one, right? That's the stuff that the Holy Spirit does. That means he gives you a love for the scriptures. He helps you understand the scriptures as you're reading them. And listen, obviously the Holy Spirit doesn't make you understand Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, right? So he doesn't work around our mind. He works through our mind. So I can't just lay my head on it and ask for revelation. I need to read it. I need to come to understand it in context, but he helps you understand the scriptures and he helps you apply the scriptures to your life. Romans 8:16 says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know what that means? That means when you feel abandoned, when you feel alone, when you feel like an orphan, like you're down here doing it all by yourself, I've got bills due and I don't have the money to pay, I got difficulties in my marriage, I got stuff going on, I feel all alone. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does is in that moment is remind you of the truth of the gospel. You are in Christ. You are loved by God. You have been adopted. You are his son. You are his daughter. The Holy Spirit is that, which is a beautiful picture we see about the Holy Spirit is he's never showing off. He's showing God. He's showing Jesus. Remember what Christ did on the cross. Remember what the Father did in sending the Son, that the Holy Spirit is the one that always points away from himself. All right, now let's go a little deeper as I'm trying to close. I ain't trying that hard, though. Again, 
You know, there's places in the ocean that we can't go. We all, you, you go to the ocean and we love it. We step in it, right? It's great. Kids can play in it. But you keep going deeper and deeper and deeper out or farther and farther and farther out there and it gets deeper and darker and more mysterious down there. The gospel is the same way. God himself is the same way. You can study God all of your life for a thousand lifetimes and you can never reach the bottom of him. And that's especially true when it comes to talking about the Trinity. The word Trinity isn't just a character in the matrix, if you didn't know that. Trinity means, so try unity. Three in one. This is where we have to start when we're talking about the Trinity. First, God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God, capital G, creator God, in all of the universe. There's only one God. And Yahweh is his name. That's his covenant name revealed to us. Elohim, there's only one God. There are plenty of false gods out there. But this is how the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about God. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. Okay, so God is one. One substance, one power, one eternity. You could also say one essence. But he exists and he, display, he, he reveals himself to us in three unique persons. So if you have a triangle, God. You put three circles, a Venn diagram in there, that's the persons inside the one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are all equally God. The Father is of none. Where'd he come from? He's God. He's the uncreated creator. Neither begotten nor proceeding. Why is he saying that? I'll get to it. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Remember John 3.16, if you knew it in the King James, Right? He gave his one and only begotten son. Says it again in Hebrews 12. Begotten. Begotten doesn't mean God created him or God gave birth to him. Begotten means one and only, unique son. Here's how Princeton theologian Jonathan Edwards says it in his unpublished essay on the Trinity. He, and I, I'm gonna say it and then back away from it, Okay because we'll get to it, we'll go in a little bit. He says, when God looks at himself, he sees an image, and that image is the Son, the second member of the Trinity. This is before Jesus put on flesh. When God looks at himself, he sees an image, and that image is the Son. I'm gonna give you scripture to back it up here soon, okay? So the Son is begotten. Father's not begotten. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit, listen to this, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. All right, let's go to the, the begotten to talk about Jesus. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creations. Hebrews 1 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the glory of God that goes public. And look, the exact, exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay? So Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. He he's shares the same nature with him. So here's the idea. From all eternity... Jesus has always been the Son. There was never a time when the, son, when the Father existed without the Son. Jesus has been the Son. He has been God's reflection. So when God looks at himself, he sees Jesus, the Son, his image, completely one with God, one in essence, one in nature. He shares one will with God before he becomes a man. Once he becomes a man, he adds humanity to his divinity and now he has a human will and he has a divine will. And he, that's why he, complete, he says over and over in John, not my will, but God's will be done. The Father's will be done. This is why Jesus says over and over in John that the Father and I are one. Now here's what Edward says about the Holy Spirit. He says, when the father sees the image of himself, which is the son, and those two are two persons, the father loves the son. We see it over and over in scripture. The father loves the son. The son loves the spirit. Never once do we have God loves the spirit or Jesus loves the spirit. So Edward says that the Holy Spirit is the personification of the love of God. The love between the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father is the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the love of God. And that makes sense of so many other scriptures we, that God is love. How could God be love if he's one? Who's he love before he creates the world? Right? He, love, he is love because the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Holy Spirit. They live in literally a, a triune community of love. And when the Holy Spirit is poured into our hearts, he brings that type of love with him. This is why throughout scripture, the Holy Spirit is always kind of weird. It's represented as wind, as water, as a dove. What do all those things have in common? They're constantly moving. They're constantly flowing somewhere, pointed towards something. So the love of God the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, is the love of God on the move towards someone. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit is the love of God between them. Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, he has, who has been given to us. You see that? Makes sense. If the Holy Spirit is the love of God, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So when we come to Christ, we, we, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and makes sense of a guy dying 2,000 years ago on a Roman rugged cross. He's doing that for me. That was the price it took for God the Father to adopt me into his family. And now all of a sudden the love of God comes into me and it changes who I am as a person. The first thing it changes is I begin, maybe slowly at first, to love God, to be convinced that he loves me and what he's done 
for me. Now look at verse 23, and this is, I'm pretty much gonna, pretty much gonna close here. 1423. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. Look, and we, we, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Friends, I think this is a greater promise to us than eternal life, than heaven in the next life. Yes, that's glorious. Yes, we want it. Yes, we want to long for it. But the God who created everything has enacted salvation, sending the Son to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve for our many sins, to resurrect, beating the one enemy not one person in here could beat on their own, which is death himself. He shows up to over 500 people. Everybody's like, oh man, Jesus is back. Jesus is back from, we just watched his brutal execution and he's back from the dead. And then Jesus comes to his disciples and goes, I'm about to leave. Now this, I I would have been like, you just died. That was kind of hard on us. When you, you kind of, kind of hurt. And now you're leaving us. And Jesus loves us so much that he doesn't want a halfway salvation. He doesn't want a three-quarter salvation. He wants a total salvation. And in order to have a total salvation, he needs to go back to where he's from, which is heaven, and to sit where he's supposed to sit on the throne of God, and the Father and the Son, and the perfect love that they share between one another, he's going to send to us, to fill us with God himself. The love of God comes into our heart and makes its home with us. Get out of here, are you kidding me? Listen, no football team can do that. No spouse can do that. No food, drink, nothing the world has to offer can do that. Only God himself can do that. And that's what he's offering you this morning. I don't understand it. Yeah, me neither. Again, we're ants trying to figure out trigonometry, right? Human beings made in the image of God trying to figure out the all-sufficient one. But this is what he's told us in his word. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you for revealing who you are. I thank you for the links that, that you went to convince us of the love of God. Oh, Father, there's people in this room this morning that feel far from you. They feel confused about you. They're struggling with things in their life. They've got difficulties in their marriage and their parenting and their finances and all these different things. And they just want you to fix it. Lord God, you have promised to do something so much greater than just fix our problems. You promised to come into us and make your home in us. Would you do that work through the power of the Holy Spirit, even right now, that they would cry out to you and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Father God, thank you for this. Holy Spirit, would you come in? And Holy Spirit, would you do it? Would you do it? Thank you that we get to come to your table now, that you are the God who's made his home with us and you are the God who wants to have a meal with us to remind us what it cost for God to come in and make his home with us. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this bread, which we confess 
provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our savior. We ask you to enable us to drink of it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. Would you do this, Lord Jesus, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.